As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Yo, technology, what is it all about? Uber has a toxic culture that is plagued by disrespect, exclusionary cliques, lack of diversity, and tolerance for bullying and harassment of every form. These were the words from a very public letter written by two of Uber's earliest investors, the husband and wife team of Mitch and Frida Kapoor. And the letter really put an exclamation point on the series of crises that have rocked what has become the company that everyone loves to hate. And really, Uber should have seen it coming. Frida started the first group on workplace sexual harassment way back in 1976. And Mitch is a legendary investor. He started Lotus, if you remember that. He's backed loads of other companies that went on to do very big things. Tech companies have similar problems to what Wall Street had in the 80s and 90s. And so to think that it's special is just delusional. So that's who I'm talking to today. To get a sense from them of what's wrong with Silicon Valley and what happens when you have a go at the world's largest private technology company. But before we get to that, I just want to get a bit of context for the, the discussion because I actually spoke with Mitch and Frida nearly two months ago, back when we were just getting this podcast set up and lining up interviews. So what happened this week? A few things. Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber, he has taken a leave of absence. That was announced at the same time that the company published the results of a an investigation into sexual harassment and culture at the company that was led by Eric Holder, a former U.S. Attorney General. The company agreed to adopt all of his recommendations. They're going to hire loads of new people, put in new systems, etc. But Kalanick leaving was the latest in a series of executive departures. Though he's coming back, others are not. So the company is at the moment without a CEO, COO, CMO. CFO, etc., uh, which is kind of ironic for a company obsessed with introducing driverless cars. They have no one at the wheel. Anyhow, that is all to say that when I spoke with Mitch and Frida, obviously none of that had happened. But what we speak about still very much applies. And of course, it's not an Uber podcast solely. We talk about lots of other interesting things, not least of which. The importance of establishing a healthy culture right from the beginning because when companies get big it's much harder to change as we're seeing now at uber anyhow without further ado mitch and frida hope you enjoy it many people have come to us and said how does uber fit into your portfolio how does this fit with your investment criteria how is this an impact investment we would say, look, we're not sure if it does meet our criteria. It predates our criteria. 
but also because our own reputation was on the line, we felt like it was important to speak out. And we felt like we wanted to call out other investors who were sitting quietly and not exercising the influence. And they had many, many, many times the influence that we do. So who is sitting on the board? Who is hearing more information than we are? What guidance are they giving? Do you just look the other way when a company keeps having higher and higher and higher valuation? Or do you pay attention to what kind of company it is? The original investment was made in 2010. I heard about the company in 2009 from Garrett Camp, who was the original founder. I'd invested in one of his other earlier startups who was successful. For years, we were trying to work behind the scenes quietly to advise Uber to help them build a better culture. They would reach out to us sometimes. Fried had gone over and given a, a big talk on implicit bias. Then these new allegations started coming out, and senior people at Uber reached out to us, and we were on the phone for hours counseling them. They were not really responsive, and we got to a point of frustration that we had pursued the quiet inside route as far as we could, and as a matter of of conscience and reputation, there was no other choice but to say something publicly. And do you think the message has got through internally? Do you you see improvement? The message has certainly gotten through. After some challenging exchanges, the door is now open wider than it ever has been. Our bandwidth of communication to senior people at Uber is the best that it's ever been. And I can say that they are listening. And it is still a little too soon to know what the impact is going to be. I do think it is better. I do think they are listening. They have a relatively new chief human resources officer. Is that Leanne Hornsey? Is that yes. The, she's British, actually. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Leanne and Bernard Coleman is the new head of diversity and inclusion. Came from the Hillary Rodham Clinton campaign. We have met with them at their initiation. I was over at Uber a few days ago addressing all of their heads of employee resource groups. Again, all along, we have known many, many incredibly smart, incredibly committed, principled people that are still at Uber and that really want Uber to do the right thing. So one of the things that we know, and we sometimes those people pop up and they say, Thank you for writing the letter. We got emails and comments and private communications from lots of Uber employees thanking us for writing that letter. But there are many people who were there who, want, who love the company and really appreciate outside pressure. I imagine that especially the allegations of sexual harassment must have struck a chord with you because you quite literally wrote the book on workplace sexual harassment. Is that right? So I started the first group on sexual harassment in the United States in 1976 and have been working with lots of organizations, many tech companies for many decades, but also have done things like I was the on-air commentator with NBC and Tom Brokaw throughout the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas hearings. I've testified in Congress about what legislation should look like. So I have 
grown up with the issue. So that's 41 years ago. Here we are, we have these tech companies, which by many measures are the most powerful companies the world has ever seen. Facebook has almost 2 billion users. How far have we come? And it seems that now more than ever, questions of culture are really important when you have that far reach. Absolutely. They've always been that important. I think they're getting new prominence and new attention. Progress has been a few steps forward, almost as many steps backwards, and the rest of the steps sideways over all of these years. I think it's important to point out it's also a moving target. In 1976, what we were concerned about is when somebody said, sleep with me or you lose your job. I think that actually happens a lot less now than it did in 1976. So you got to count progress where you see it, right? But what most people define as sexual harassment includes a much more subtle end of the continuum. And I think when I say it's a moving target, I think that definition shifts generation by generation. And a wider range of behaviors is encompassed in there. Tech culture and the law have lagged way behind what people's own definitions are of what's okay and what's not okay. And we don't have a mechanism for people to negotiate their own boundaries at work between what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. If tech culture took these issues more seriously, there are easy, lightweight, practical solutions. But look, tech looks like a fraternity house. Frida's perspective is in a way that tech companies have similar problems to what Wall Street had in the 80s and 90s. And so to think that it's special is just delusional. Well, it's clothed in this mission yeah. of making the world a better place, et cetera, et cetera. So this idea that it's a, it's a meritocracy is, the most you can say is aspirationally it's a meritocracy, but in practice, anything but. But there's a piece of hidden good news in that, or at least a, a possibility, and this is what people ask us about Uber and can it change? Because nobody has really done it right. A disruptive company like Uber that has already done all sorts of things that people said were impossible, they've demonstrated the capability to be very, very surprising. And so there are ways in which they could step up. And it's not impossible to believe that they could really turn it around. Is that why it was, I think it was two years ago, you guys decided to, you made this pledge to invest solely in tech companies that are addressing these issues? For us to invest, we want to see founders make a commitment to building a diverse and inclusive culture. They set the goals. They do it in a way that fits with their market and what they're trying to do. We will help them with that. And it was very intentional to focus on startups because they're more malleable. If you can bake in key values and practices at the outset, there's a much greater chance that they're just going to become part of the way things are done. Whereas if you try to change a Google or a Facebook or an Apple... Or an Uber with 12,000 employees. Right. It's Although more Uber is still young enough 
even though it's large. It's like a seven-foot-tall 12-year-old, um, <laughs> which do exist. It, it is not as fixed in its ways. Not yet. The bigger you are, the longer you've gone, and also, frankly, the more successful you are, the harder it is to change because there will always be people inside saying, why mess with success? This is working for us. We're putting too much at risk. So it's just hard for the more established companies. And we decided to focus on startups for that, that reason. When I went about two years ago to talk to Uber employees about hidden bias, I think they were 2,500 employees growing to 5,000 that year. So if you think about the average tenure, half the company's been there less than a year, which means it's not a firmly set culture. You don't have just a few people being added to a base of 20,000 or 50,000 or whatever it is every year. You've got the company doubling in size, which means it is completely malleable, that you can reinvent the culture when you're bringing in more people this year than have ever worked there before. I think the perspective you guys bring is interesting because when you started Lotus, I think one of your goals was to make it the most progressive company in existence. How did you free to help make that happen? That was my job description at Lotus. Right. I have never seen it before or since, and that's a, something that tech companies could do. They could put in a job description for somebody whose job it is to make them a progressive employer. So one of the things at Lotus, it was a rapidly growing company. It was highly profitable. Those are conditions under which you could do lots more risk-taking and lots more experimentation. So we did all kinds of things that were firsts in the industry and sometimes firsts in corporate America. We were the first corporate sponsor of any AIDS walk anywhere. And that was 1984. This is pre-internet, so I didn't email anybody. I called all over the place. On the telephone. On the telephone. (laughs) And asked people what they were doing about AIDS. And everyone said, we're not touching it. We're not talking about it. There was enough indicators of it. It's going to be a crisis that's going to touch every workplace. And when I said we're going to sponsor the AIDS walk in Boston, go out there with a banner with our employees... People said, you're nuts, and you're going to have shareholder suits. And what was interesting is that when I got there in 1984, I started a diversity council, and it was a diagonal slice across the organization. It had all different kinds of demographic representation. It had every department, and it had every level in the company. Most places, their diversity councils are senior managers from each department or something. We had out gay representation on our diversity council in 1984, We all knew gay people in the company whose lives were being touched by this, and so we were all there with the banner. We were the first tech company to sign on to the Sullivan Principles, saying we wouldn't do business with South Africa under apartheid. So we innovated in the mechanisms we put in place to handle employee complaints and questions, so that giving employees a way to do things truly confidentially and even anonymously companies still don't touch that. What I say to CEOs now is if you don't create a safe and effective complaint channel, wait for your medium post. (laughs) 
Well, because that's a lot of companies have that, but it doesn't. There seems to be a lack of trust in those that they that they will work. If there's a lack of trust, they're not safe and effective. It doesn't mean go to HR. HR is largely seen as an extension of management whose job is to protect the company. And U.S. law, and I would say it's one of the United States' worst exports, is our employment law. It puts companies between a rock and a hard place on how to handle these complaints. And given that tech prides itself on breaking things, I don't know why it's been so afraid to break complaint channels or things that are good for people. If you go to HR, it gets you set a process in motion that you no longer control if you have a complaint. And so that's why people wind up writing these posts in Medium. <laughs> so one of the things that especially our British audience, perhaps not everybody understands, is that you come to the Silicon Valley, you have an idea. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And then you go straight to Sand Hill Road, where all the venture capitalists are, and then you just do laps up and down there looking for money. That is perhaps not the best way to approach it. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. So there's a lot of knowledge that has been developed over the past decades about how to successfully create new startup companies, particularly tech companies. And there's a culture here in Silicon Valley that lots of people who all participate in that. It's not just in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's in it's in New York, it's in LA, it's in London, it's in Berlin, but this is the sort of center of it. People who know how that works and who have access to it have an advantage. If you had manufacturing machinery at a time when everybody else was building things by hand, you had a huge advantage. And one of the reasons new tech companies keep happening here is because people know how to apply this knowledge of how to build a startup. So for instance, when you're just starting out, you don't know if your idea is going to be viable or not. So the chief thing to do is as quickly as possible find out as an empirical matter if your idea is any good or not. 
part of the democratization of, of entrepreneurship you know, resides in taking the knowledge of how these things work and spreading them to people and to places where they're not naturally going. And that way you get a more diverse set of entrepreneurs and a, a more diverse set of opportunities. Because if you've had a different life experience, you're going to have had different problems. A problem is just an opportunity waiting to be solved. And part of our advantage as investors is we are attuned to entrepreneurs who come from different backgrounds. We're actually not trying to cherry pick, but we work with incubator and accelerator programs that are attracting entrepreneurs who are people of color or who go out of their way to recruit an equal proportion of women and men part of the game is about leveling the playing field for all entrepreneurs. What was Uber when you found it? Well, Uber, Uber was an idea, and just an idea. Garrett Camp had started a company called StumbleUpon. It would just show you random interesting websites. Now, you would think, what's the point? But believe me, it was so well done. And I was an investor in that, and he sold it to eBay, and we all made money. And eBay didn't know what to do with it. So he bought it back from eBay. They gave it back to him, basically. For, well, for like a dollar or something. Yeah, I mean, it was like yeah, pennies on the dollar. So, And he was raising more money to relaunch it. I wanted to get in. One of his other investors had an objection, thought I was doing something else that was competitive. But I was very determined because I had had the opportunity to invest in Twitter at the very beginning, and I didn't get it. And that's because I was an investor in Ev Williams' previous company called Odeo. It did podcasting. But then Apple gave all the podcasting tools of that era away for free. Odeo's business prospects collapsed. Some other investors said, so Ev, tell me what you're working on. Let's just roll it over into the next thing because you already have the money. That was Twitter. I was so mad at myself for that. Well, what did you do? You just I just took- got the money back. So here I am. I'm talking to Garrett. I'm really mad at myself, and they won't let me into the new StumbleUpon. So I say to him, well, what else are you working on? And he says, well, I have this idea. Not going to work on it for a year. I'm busy. But we're going to use the smartphone, and we're going to put a map up on it and show where there are car service cars that are available and you can punch in your location and one will come and pick you up. Isn't that cool? And I thought to myself, well, actually, I don't think this is a big idea, but it's pretty cool. And you got to remember that the speed of the iPhone connection was still low. It was 2G. It wasn't even 3G yet. Maps barely worked. GPS really didn't work. But this idea of being able to summon a car was cool. So I just said, I'm in. Let me know when you're, you know, when you're starting it. And nine months later, he said, send me a check. I'm starting it. How much did you invest? Uh, $75,000 in the original and then some more subsequently. I imagine that's worth a lot a more lot. than $75,000. It is worth though. a lot more than seventy. Well, it is, and it's illiquid. And if you believe the FT, your competition. I don't uh, read that newspaper. Okay. Uh, they say <laughs> that Uber is going out of business. 
It's supposed to be 70 billion, but yeah. that's kind of... But the only valuation that matters is the one at the exit. I've seen things go up, go down, but, you know, Travis, who has control, along with, the other, with Ryan Graves and um, Garrett, he is famously on record as saying he wants to have an IPO as late as possible and put it off. He knows that he can't. People who are sort of counting on making a killing or getting their money out, I mean, anytime soon, they, they could be disappointed. There's got to be a big secondary market in those shares, though, no? In general, and, and the case with Uber, is you get locked up. Part of the deal of, of the privilege of being able to invest in these companies is an agreement not to go onto the secondary market. The venture capitalists who come in and put the big money in want to control the process up through an IPO or acquisition. And if there's a secondary market, it disturbs that. And it also impacts the ability of the company to offer stock or stock options to employees the price they would like to convey it at. And can we talk about the law for a second and... Where we are today, technology is changing incredibly rapidly. You founded the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is about protecting rights online. There does seem to be a growing concern around the government's just lack of understanding of what is happening and the laws that are required to make sure bad things don't happen or that rights aren't trampled, etc. Is this something that you guys are trying to address or thinking about? We've certainly been thinking about it. One of the things that's very interesting and one of the things that's really appealing about tech is that you can invent something new. And so one of the things that I am quite fascinated by, and we've done some investing in a new sector that I call people ops tech. We've had two people ops tech pitch competitions, and it's one of the reasons I'm quite hopeful, is it's leveraging technology to mitigate bias at scale. So we can have these tech geniuses invent technology that can give them real-time feedback about their own behavior. So for instance, we have companies that we've invested in. One is called interviewing.io. It's an anonymous platform for doing technical or coding interviews online. And it does voice masking. Is it an electronic, like, kind of Stephen Hawking type voice? Yeah, but... Yeah. Right. Well, and what you do is, is typically what happens when you apply for any kind of engineering job, you go in and you do this whiteboard exercise, right? So what this does is it replaces that. So you don't have to travel, and you have this interactive coding exercise online, and it tests coding ability, and it tests problem solving. Many, many companies have been using it in a pilot phase and have said people we rejected based on their resume, turned out to be the one who aced the coding exam. And aren't you supposed to be hiring just for coding skills? And so they end up hiring much more diversity of all kinds. We have many, many companies like this. Another one that's called Junco that is using AI It's deep tech, and it goes and uses your Salesforce and your email and your everything else, and it pops up and it says, well, Blake, seems like the last 10 assignments have all been given to men on your team, and none of the women are getting good assignments. 
So you might want to think about giving the long-term career-building assignments to women. What the CEO, and both examples I gave you are women CEOs, and the, what the CEO said is fascinating is that this is, of course, a bot that's doing this, going through all your Salesforce and everything else. People write the bot back, and they say, thank you so much for pointing that out. I didn't notice. I'm going to do better. You're right. Susie on my team could really handle this. So it's just completely fascinating. I wanted to give you a slant on the law. I mean, one dimension of it is sometimes, not all the time, you can use technology to solve a social problem better than you can by trying to pass a law or regulating it. I think that's really true in the areas that Frida was talking about. We think it's true in things like payday lending, where we have a LendUp, which has originated over a billion dollars in loans and is an alternative to payday lending with decreasing interest rates and rebuilding credit scores. So the idea is to graduate people back to the mainstream credit system, which is a different motivation than everybody in the payday lending, but they're building this huge business doing it. Ben Jealous, our partner at Capital Capital, used to be the head of the NAACP. That was one of the instances when he was leaving the NAACP and contemplating what to do next that was persuasive to him about the power of technology because he'd been dealing with these payday lending issues and regulators and states for a very long time. You might want to say that the NAACP is the United States' oldest civil rights organization. I might, but you just said it. Good good point. Good point. Electronic Frontier Foundation, which I co-founded 27 years ago, was specifically concerned with rights like freedom of speech. It was in the early days of the Internet. It was really five years before web browsers, before even the beginning of a mass market, but it was the, the stirrings. Why founded well, then? Because people were just starting to go online. The U.S. Defense Department gave the Internet to the National Science Foundation, and the National Science Foundation was bringing in private industry into it. And so for the first time, ordinary citizens could get an Internet connection. So the first settlers of cyberspace were showing up. And so the phenomena of hacking also started showing up in a new kind of way. I looked at the kids who were doing this and got to know them, and most of them, it was like vandalism. It was stuff teenagers do. Not, not great stuff to do, but not, not highly damaging. There was no organized crime. There was no commercial motivation of identity for identity theft. It was no government spying. All that was to come later. What we wanted to do was to ensure a proportional response, that the law enforcement efforts respected basic rights. And I think EFF was very successful in being in the middle of a group of organizations and a movement in the early 90s to do that. We did not anticipate, nor did the architects of the Internet, was that every bad thing that a person can think of doing or doing, they can do in an amplified way using technology. 
But the basic architecture of the internet, its decentralization and its openness, took no account of that. It fundamentally lacks just even basic abilities to do the equivalent of locking your front door. So if you look at Facebook, Twitter, which has become just a den of abuse and terrible things being said, how do you address that issue? Because there does seem to be in the internet's life cycle, we're still in this early days where there is kind of, there is no sheriff in town or sheriffs. I would say while we're addressing that, let's also address government surveillance, licit and illicit, and what people can and should expect and do to protect themselves. Because they're different sides of the same coin. It's a mess. In the more bad news department, there are fundamental tensions between protecting people's individual rights of expression and free speech and our collective interest in having a safe society and a civil society. What we're doing is a terrible job of having real conversations about it among practical people who may disagree in their values of where they want to see the emphasis, but agree that we need to do something. In fact, the dysfunction around the internet mirrors the political dysfunction in the US and elsewhere, where there used to be working arrangements so that people of different political parties found some things to do together. And that has really broken down and will be replaced by we don't know what So until we can get the equivalent of real peace talks, of people sitting down, it's really not going to get that much better because we're patching over. I mean, and I think that Facebook and Twitter could be and should be and are belatedly beginning to do far more than, you know, they've done before. But it's a problem that's bigger than any one company. Look at Reddit, which is the sixth most popular site on the internet. It, it's a tough situation. One final question. Do you think Uber regrets taking your money? <laughs> no, not at all. Enough people there know, including very senior people, that the success of the company depends on surmounting these cultural challenges. They understand that we're an ally and that Our kind of public statement, while painful, perhaps, for a period of time, was actually healthy. In fact, I would say I think they actually respect us more for speaking up about this. And they know where we're coming from. And also, we've been really clear, our motives, we're shareholders. We want to see the company succeed. We're not out there trying to score points. We are, by our lights, trying to help them become what they can and should be. And we've heard... Nothing to the contrary. What we have heard is the thunderous silence from the investing community who behind our backs have started going to other of our companies, hot companies, saying things like, oh, you don't want to do business with Kapor. They're going to turn on you the way they turned on Uber. And so you want to do business with us. Nice, huh? 
Really? So what's the biggest surprise has really been it's a combination of cowardice and craven behavior. Look, I mean, venture capital is not a particularly nice place. I mean, no one's been under that illusion, but it that's been surprising and a little disappointing. Wow. Great. Thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And that's it. Another episode is in the can. Thank you to Mitch and Frida for sitting down. Lots of great stories. And of course, um, very clear that there's still a lot of work to do to fix what's wrong with tech. If you do like what you hear, please stop into iTunes, to the iTunes store, and give a rating and review to the podcast. It always helps. And of course, you can check me out every Sunday in the newspaper. All for now. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.